Welcome, I'm Cyrus Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, the last two years have brought a huge challenge to social protection systems around the world as the pandemic hit and shed light to the need of strengthening social insurance policies to protect workers against shocks that affected their livelihoods. We look at the case of the South Africa's Unemployment Insurance Fund, or UIF, and the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme, better known as TERS, to analyze how these policies were implemented to reach informal workers, what went wrong, what went right, the challenges ahead, and what learnings these might bring to help us think about new insurance schemes that can protect informal workers. To help us understand and navigate the UIF TERS case, we invited two guests. First, I talked to Amy Takie, co-founder of ISWI, Domestic Workers Alliance, a network of domestic workers in Johannesburg, where Emmy advises domestic workers on their labor rights, supports them in accessing justice and on their advocacy efforts. The second guest is Myrtle Whitboy, the General Secretary of the South Africa Domestic Workers Service and Allied Workers Union and the President of the International Domestic Workers Federation, IDWF. Myrtle will provide us with an account from the domestic workers perspective. And now, let's hear first our talk with Amy Takie. Amy Takie. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Amy, can you explain for those who are not familiarized with the South African context, what is the Unemployment Insurance Fund? What was it for? Who are the beneficiaries? Can you show us the general picture? Sure. So the, the Unemployment Insurance Fund is the primary avenue for worker social protections in South Africa, and it's funded by contributions. So As soon as someone is employed in South Africa, the employer is responsible to register that person for the fund, which is abbreviated UIF. So they have to be registered for UIF. And um, once they are registered, if they are injured, for example, and can't work, then they can get disability support. If they are pregnant and need maternity leave, they can be covered through UIF, their time off, they can still get a portion of their salary. If they are dismissed or retrenched, they can get unemployment payments for up to a certain period of time. And so it's really, I believe there's also a death benefit. So it's, it's a, a foundation to support workers in the work environment should they be unable to work. Beneficiaries are workers themselves. Migrant workers are covered under UIF as long as they have a permit to work in South Africa then they can apply. And they recently, in the last few years, included asylees and refugees in UIF eligibility as well. It's financed through the contributions from workers. So the employer pays 1% of the salary and the worker pays has 1% deducted from their salary every month. And what about the self-employed informal workers? They, they are not covered by the UIF. 
No, they're not covered. Domestic workers, which is the sector I come from, are covered. But that was only after quite a lot of advocacy work by the domestic workers union, literally chaining themselves to the gates of parliament to ensure that they could be included as workers and therefore be covered under UIF. So I believe that was in 2003 that the domestic workers were added to UIF eligibility. When the pandemic hit South Africa, the government has repurposed a policy that was launched a few months before that called TERS the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme that was attached to the Unemployment Insurance Fund. Can you explain what's the relation between TERS and the UIF? And also, how has this repurposing process taken place? So when the lockdown hit and businesses had to close and workers were no longer able to be at work, the government did sanction that employers could put their workers on unpaid leave with the idea that businesses, if they weren't operating, they wouldn't be able to get an income and they wouldn't have the money to pay their staff. And then that the state would step in and pay those wages with the COVID emergency funds. So that's what the temporary employee relief scheme was. It just ran for, I think it was three or four months. And then they started it up again for another month or two at some point. And um, the UIF it was the tool that was used to implement the terse payments. And so rather than trying to go through a new process of registering employees across the country in an emergency situation to try to deal with these payments, they already had UIF in place. So they used that as the register of workers and as the vehicle through which those payments could be made. And, and also the funds, sorry, because before COVID hit, there was actually quite a substantial surplus in the unemployment insurance fund. So they were sitting on a really hefty balance. And so some of that balance was then used to do the payouts for TERSTs. Practically, there was a separate website set up through which you could register. And then using your UIF reference number, you could process the paperwork. Employers had to do the application. So workers themselves, in the vast majority of cases, weren't able to apply for TERSTs. It had to be the employer applying on behalf of the workers. And... That process was, you know, I think there's mixed reviews of it. I think given the challenges of the time and that everything had to be, was done in a very short amount of time. And I think the whole world was in a bit of a state of chaos with the onset of COVID compared to probably what happened in a lot of other countries. I think it did work well. In the first couple of months, there was frustration with document requirements being changed after you submitted the paperwork or really long processing times. But by the time they got into the third or fourth month, sometimes people were getting their payouts within a week or two of their application being submitted, and it was relatively efficient. That's with a very large number of exceptions. So a lot of people will come and say, no, 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 it wasn't efficient at all in my case. But for a lot of people, it was. One big exception was for migrant workers. So even if they were documented in, had work permits to be in South Africa and registered for UIF, any application for migrant workers got sent to be processed separately and reviewed according to their documentation status. And so often migrant workers found that their South African colleagues got paid out within a couple of weeks and they were made, waiting for months to get paid out. And there may be some that actually never have. To which extent TERS was able to reach informal workers, in particular domestic workers, and why do you think that happened? This was quite a big issue. Because TERS was based on the unemployment insurance fund, workers who were not registered for the unemployment insurance fund did not have access 
to TERFs. And so a lot of workers either who were working for companies that weren't up to date on their paperwork or that were simply not meeting their obligations. So there are a lot of even formal companies, small business, et cetera, that hadn't registered their workers. And those workers were really battling because they couldn't access TERFs. And domestic workers as well were challenged for that same reason. So even though by law, domestic employers are required when they hire someone to help clean in their house or watch their children, they're required to register that person for UIF and make monthly deductions. The vast majority of employers do not do that. The Department of Labor at one point estimated that a full 30% of domestic workers were not registered for UIF. But if you look at academic studies and the experience of worker organizations, as well as the recent ILO report, that number is probably much more likely to be about 70 to 80% of domestic workers are not registered. And so all of a sudden you had all of these domestic workers who were put on extended unpaid leave and they had no access to the COVID relief payments for workers because they were not registered for UIF. And Domestic workers particularly are working at such low wages that they will struggle to meet their expenses if they don't get a monthly paycheck. I mean, most of us will, but there's no pocket of money there, like a savings cushion to carry you over for three months when you're not making even a living wage. And so within a couple of weeks of lockdown, most of us domestic work organizations were in, in the situation of serious members calling literally unable to feed their children and not knowing what to do. And so kind of thrown into trying to provide food support. It was quite a serious emergency. And basically what happened is the government's failure to hold domestic employers accountable as formal employers and the employer's kind of lackadaisicalness of not, most employers will say, oh, I can't be bothered. I have to go to the government office and, or I tried and it didn't work. And, you know, it's such a hassle, which in some cases are right. It can be a hassle, but it's also a hassle to apply for your passport or whatever, but you still go through and do it because you know you have to do it. And because domestic employers are never held accountable, they just got off with not doing the paperwork. And as soon as they didn't do the paperwork and they thought, oh, some people will say, oh, I'll, I'll just give them a big lump sum if I ever dismiss them. Even well-meaning employers will say this, but the problem is that lump sum isn't going to cover as much long-term support as the UIF can provide. And I think COVID was a huge wake-up call on that. And so the vast majority of, of workers were not able to access UIF. And um, some who were registered, again, were migrant workers. And so we're still not able to access, sorry, we're not able to access TERS. So it really was ineffective in reaching domestic workers. What were the main barriers domestic workers have faced to access the benefit? So the first was the primary one, which is that they were not registered for UIF. So the, the vast majority of domestic workers automatically were off the list of people who could receive. And so I, I will say there are some domestic workers that did keep their job during this period, right? Because they were living in with their employers or maybe they didn't traditionally live with their employers, but the employers brought them to live there during the COVID period. So those obviously weren't in a situation of even being eligible, but for those who were eligible because they were no longer working, the biggest barrier was non-registration for UAF. Another quite important barrier was that the primary system of application was for employers 
to do the application rather than workers. They did in cases where there's less than 10 employees, I think allow for workers to do it, but the system wasn't designed for it. And so it made it more complicated. And, and a lot of domestic workers are not necessarily using a lot of online registration websites, et cetera, or have limited access to data. And so the technological hurdle was in some cases a, a hurdle as well. And that went into a court case. We approached um, an organization called Casual Workers Advice Office, and they were they represent a lot of casual workers, so people who were working seasonally, perhaps, or on three-month contracts, et cetera. And those workers were also having issues of not having been registered. And together with them and with the farm work organization, because farm workers were also having the issue that their employers could claim for them, but because it wasn't mandatory for employers to claim, the employer could also say, oh, I can't be bothered to, to do the terse paperwork and I'll just let the workers be. And so it really, again, in sectors such as domestic work and farm work, too often workers' rights are actually just dependent on the goodwill of the employer. And that's really what happened here. And so together with the Support Center for Land Change, Women on Farms, and uh, Casual Workers Advice Office, we launched a legal battle with the Department of Labor. So basically started with letters and then launched a court application to, first of all, require that if employers have put their workers on unpaid leave due to COVID, that they must do the terse, process the terse application. It's not their choice. Um, secondly, that unregistered workers should be given access to TERS because it is not their own fault that they weren't registered. It's the fault of their employer who was breaking the law. And there were two other related kind of small, more minor issues. Now, all of those were agreed to outside of the court, except for the issue of unregistered workers. And so that's where we went. We then, as ISWI and one other, and, and one other organization, we then went back and pushed again on that issue and did a bit of media work and Eventually, they did agree that unregistered workers could be, should have access to TERS if they work in a private household. So they basically said, okay, we're going to limit it to domestic workers or potentially, in some cases, farm workers are working for an individual farmer as opposed to being a company. But that was relatively unsuccessful because it was May, so the lockdown started at the tail end of March. It's the first um, Department of Labor uh, legal engagement on these issues was a couple weeks into April. And then it was the end of May that we got an official agreement that they would allow unregistered workers to claim TERS because they realized that actually, according to the rights put out in the Constitution and in the UIF, that they were legally bound to. And so what happened is they said, okay, we've agreed to it, we'll operationalize it. And that's where it sat. So we kept writing to find out when is this gonna be operationalized? And it was only in October. So three, four months later, after most of the tourist payments had closed by that point, that they finally said, okay, we're, we're opening up a section of the website that will allow you to claim because you couldn't claim onto tourist without the UIF number. So they opened it up so that you could claim without a UIF number, but there were still issues. If you're a migrant worker, it wouldn't allow you to claim on TERS because it was asking for a South African ID number. 
And um, again, there were issues with the technology process for workers themselves. And the, the final issue was that a lot of workers by that time were actually quite hesitant to go to their employers and ask for a letter and get the employer to sign off on a letter form that was required for them to apply to TERS. Because for employers, they're then signing off that they've been employing this person, but that this person is not registered for UIF. So they're actually incriminating themselves legally by signing this form. And so it made it very difficult for workers to actually get the documentation that they needed. And by the time it was operationalized, a lot of people had kind of moved on and they weren't able to kind of go back and push. So it was frustrating because all of that effort and very few, if any, unregistered workers ever benefited from the government's agreement to take on those payments. Um, but I think what was important about it is that it did set a precedent. And in the last few years in South Africa, there have been a, there's been quite a big fight to include domestic workers in the worker compensation fund, which is called COIDA. Um, they're the only sector of workers other than government and military that are excluded from that. So there's been, it all went all the way to the constitutional court a few years back. And so workers are now included in COIDA. And to push for their inclusion in TERS also sent quite a big message to the Department of Labor that this sector has to be professionalized and has to be recognized. It's recognized in the legislation as a profession, but it's not recognized in practice by the Department of Labor. On the other hand, what do you believe has worked well in TERS? I think it's very important that the policy itself was enacted so that the government stepped up to its obligation despite the flaws in, in actually carrying that out, they stepped up to this, its obligation to recognize that, that salaries are not going to be paid and that workers are going to struggle. And so the fact that that TERS was there, and I know there are quite a number of businesses that would have just completely gone under because they wouldn't have been able to pay staff salaries through the period. And, and like I said earlier, in a lot of cases, it did, once it kind of got underway and ironed out some of the wrinkles, it did work quite efficiently for a lot of people, if not for everybody. And it was a learning experience, I think, for the labor sector in looking at how to handle, hopefully there won't be a lot of pandemics in the future, but how to handle different emergencies in terms of the labor movement and where workers sit in those situations. To wrap up, what were the main learnings from TERS that we can take to think about new insurance schemes that can protect domestic workers? I mean, I guess the, the one that stands out most is simply the importance of worker social protections. That even in, in more informal situations where an employer might say, oh, but I pay extra and I always help with the medical bills and, 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 you have almost a paternalistic relationship. And so the worker is dependent upon the employer for all of those things. Whereas when you've got something like UIF, those rights and that access is codified. Again, there's often flaws in trying to access it, but it's in the law and there's a system by which they can fight for it. And so if you look at situations, I think the big learning with TERS was, it was quite a big, I mean, for all of us, obviously COVID was not expected um, and the repercussions, we hadn't imagined them or made a plan for them. And so social protections allow for, <laughs> plans to be made in emergency situations and people to be taken care of in situations where the employer cannot pay them. And so with domestic workers, with farm workers who were the lowest paid workers in the country, I mean, until this year, domestic 
workers were not even getting the full minimum wage and, and farm workers as well until last year. And so they were some of the most vulnerable workers economically. And it's the most important for people, for people trying to live on those limited wages to have a backup system if they're injured and they can't work. If they, are, if they fall pregnant and their employer doesn't pay their maternity leave, if they pass away, et cetera, they really need those, that social infrastructure, which, which we all do, which is why it's in place, but to exclude vulnerable and informal workers from it. And, and in South Africa, they're only informal in practice. Under the law, they're not informal, but, but in practice, um, employers are really taking advantage of it. And those are actually the people who need the most effort in terms of the government making sure that employers are held accountable for their inclusion. I mean, if you look at Botswana, for example, especially migrant domestic workers in Botswana, they were not eligible for any COVID support. And we're really, some of them were actually having to turn to prostitution and other really desperate measures in order to just feed themselves. And if you look at a number of countries in the region, domestic workers were in the same situation because they were so informal, there was no route to support them and they, they didn't have access. In Namibia, there was some access to funding for workers who weren't working, but domestic workers that were surveyed there, for the most part, most of them weren't even able to access the online platforms that were required to apply for it. And in cases where, where they did receive the, the funding, it was mostly because someone else in the household applied. So I think just the lessons are the importance of the insurance schemes generally, and, and then also the importance of including the, the country's more, most lowest paid sectors of workers in that and finding avenues to both ensure that employers are held accountable and secondly, that workers can access the registration and processing platforms. Amy Tekie, thank you very much. No worries. Now let's hear our talk with Myrtle Witboy, President of the International Domestic Workers Federation, who will give us an account from the domestic workers' perspective. Myrtle Witboy, welcome to our podcast. Okay, Myrtle, let's jump right into it. The Unemployment Insurance Fund includes domestic workers. Although in theory, workers are included, in practice, many are left out. What are the main issues domestic workers face to get the benefit? Yes, but a lot of problems has occurred on the road from 2002 to where we are today. That what we find there was a big difficulty in actually including domestic workers within the unemployment fund because firstly employers have never had contracts with domestic workers so the contract by not having contract they didn't have the identity number of domestic workers and obviously they didn't have how domestic workers was employed then secondly there was a lack of inspectors to actually assist the department of labor on actually, you know, register domestic workers into the unemployment fund. And over the years, that has created a big problem for domestic worker sector, because whenever we have problems with domestic workers, it was also that they couldn't claim from the unemployment fund because of the fact that they were not registered. And this has made that a lot of protests and petitions were signed by, by domestic workers 
and by us in South Africa to actually speed up that how domestic workers can be introduced into this fund. You also have to understand domestic workers had no clue of what is an unemployment fund. You know, you fight for unemployment fund, you can pay for unemployment fund, so you basically your mind is just on that. But you don't actually have the education for domestic workers to really understand when the fund is there, you have to know your employer must ask for ID number. You have to actually know what is in the fund. So it all creates a lot of difficulties for us in South Africa. And constant meetings with the Department of Labor did not really have a lot of success. With the result that we had to find ways of how we can overcome, you know, first the registration of, of the domestic workers, secondly, the understanding of why they must be registered, and thirdly, what if they, you know, they didn't understand. According to what you say, we have to contribute 1% of our salary to this fund. But my employer has never asked me for that. My employer has never deducted anything from me. So actually also the one good part was that some employers was actually saying, okay, I don't mind paying in the 2%. But basically the problems was not just from the employer side. The problems was also by the labor. The labor did not have a way of how they you know, respond to employers, employers, a lot of employers complain, they were put on hold, a lot of complaints say they never receive how they must pay this. So there was a lot of hassles with this unemployment fund. Nevertheless, what as they claim it, 450,000 domestic workers was registered over the years. And then 2008, 500,000 domestic workers are now registered and pay. However, we go into a COVID-19 lockdown and immediately right there, we see the weaknesses within the unemployment fund. We find that 250,000 domestic workers, according to the Department of Labor, has lost their jobs. But only about 70,000 of those workers was actually registered for the unemployment fund. Secondly, you find that when you have to go online and you want to register a domestic worker, now they say domestic workers must go and register themselves or re-register them. Now, for the union, we wait an hour. You wait two hours holding on because you're number 20, you're number 30. Now, how can a domestic worker that maybe only a 10 rand data or 20 rand data on her phone, how can she hold on to wait for them to come back? So we find a weakness in that, that many domestic workers just give up. And coming to our offices, we find that we go into queues and every time it's a hold on, hold on, it becomes very frustrated. And also the offices was closed, so there was no way domestic workers can actually then the Department of Labor bring us a statement to say, okay, domestic workers, you can actually fill in this form, you can fax this form to us, but if you say you did, you're not getting paid, you must have your employer to sign this form. Now we are in lockdown. You are staying in the township. The employer is staying in the suburb. Now you have to take this form out of the township and go to your employer. Your employer must sign this form. You must spend bus fare to go to the employer. Employer sign your form. You have to go back 
to the Department of Labor. You have to find a fax machine or something. That's totally into work. So obviously, what we are seeing in South Africa is the lack of, you know, the registration of domestic workers. About a couple of years ago, 2016, 17, the Department of Labor in Cape Town decided to send to borrow inspectors from other sector, like they call it, to go around in one of the suburbs. They did 450 homes. Out of the 450 homes, they find that 50% of that employers did not register their domestic workers. And it's a big concern. The concern is that now we have two new labor laws. And if we failed already at the unemployment fund, we failed already, the, the, the department has failed. We're moving into a new quota compensation. Again, workers must be registered and a fee must be paid, right? We're moving to another one this year, the wage act. So, so obviously the challenge is there. And I think this is why it would be great for you to, to, to have the follow-up on, you know that WICO is having this uh, dialogue. Uh, WICO is having a dialogue on uh, the 21st of Monday. We were very fortunate to uh, get the top officials of the unemployment fund and COIDA to actually willing to come and debate. And if we look at the unemployment fund, and if we look at the weapon we have in our hand and we're not using it, the Convention 189, and we're not using it because the Convention 189 states clearly that all workers are entitled to the unemployment funds. All workers are entitled to compensation. So now when we won uh, the quota, all of a sudden, you know, it made us away. You've got a convention 189. You have to start using that convention. We should challenge them at our debate and we should see their knowledge of this convention 189 and see if they actually know and refer them to that clauses that say all domestic workers are entitled to unemployment benefits. And I think it's gonna be a very interesting debate. Because this convention is a binding document and the convention add to our labor laws and the convention actually say, this is what there is for domestic workers. But if we are going to be relaxed around this convention and we fought five years for this convention ourselves. So, so the way forward for us is how can we take the convention and strengthen the not only the unemployment fund, the COIDA and the wages, because all domestic workers must be paid a decent wage. How do we really get, you know, to get them to address this issue, to admit, to admit that they're failing? Looking ahead, what kind of changes should be made to these new insurance schemes in order to reach and protect domestic workers? The changes that should happen is that the Department of Labor must include more inspectors. They also should change and they have to have people that specifically sit and work on the database of employers and domestic workers. You cannot have a system that you don't know who is domestic workers and who's employers. How do you know about uh, you know the unemployment fund? 
So we are saying a proper system with maybe 25 to 30 inspectors, we're talking about each province. We're not talking about a flying down from Johannesburg to come to Cape Town. No, we're talking about each province. Another thing is database should be updated right here in each province. There should be access for us to see about domestic workers. And there should be penalties. At the moment, there's no penalties for an employer. She doesn't get penalized. She maybe just get told pain. There should be a penalty to say, you're a fine of 350, you're a fine of 500 grand. If we find that you have not registered. So the way forward would be clearly a penalty for, for employers that's not registering, a proper database and inspection of workplaces. But that's basically what we're going to keep on telling them and what we're sending to them next week and what we, what we want. That is the way forward. Myrtle Witboy, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And if you want to learn more about the South Africa's Unemployment Insurance Fund and TERS, we will leave some links at the description of the episode. And please don't forget to follow WeGo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook, to get our latest publications, events and news. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the WeGo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time!